Hello and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, August 12th, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. From this week's Closer Look column, Meet a Leader You Should Know. Sherry Penny, Employer Engagement Director, Iowa Women's Foundation. By Emily Kestel, Fearless Editor. The child care crisis has been simmering for decades across the state and country. In 2020, it boiled over when Iowa lost a third of its child care slots. Seeing that child care was crucial to helping the state's economic recovery from the pandemic, Governor Kim Reynolds assembled her child care task force in 2021 to develop a comprehensive strategy to address the crisis. The 18-member group's first recommendation was to create a position for someone who would help businesses, employers, and communities understand their role in addressing the child care crisis through a partnership with the Iowa Economic Development Authority and the Iowa Women's Foundation. Sherry Penny was hired for the position and began working in June. Tell me about your background and what drew you to your role. I knew I've always wanted to work with children in some capacity. My husband and I and I moved to North Iowa after college, and there weren't any teaching positions available. So I got into working for the Parks and Rec Department in Mason City and ran the before and after school program. I just loved that. I loved the business side and also being able to work with kids. From there, I've always just in some capacity worked with children whether it was substitute teaching in the Osage Community School District or being an area manager for the Head Start program. I also had a little bit of a role in higher education as the registrar for the Art of Education University. At that time, COVID hit, and I was trying to work from home with three children. I was that statistic of leaving the workforce. I stayed home for a bit, then decided I needed to kind of get back into the workforce. That's when I went to North Iowa Community Action as an area manager. But the economic development director in Mitchell County had left, so there was a big hole that our community was trying to fill. My name was thrown out there for the Mitchell County position, but I'd never even considered it. I decided to take on the challenge and found that I loved it. I loved making those connections and meeting with industry leaders in our community and in our county. The one thing I kept hearing time and time again was, we need houses and we need childcare. So we started exploring innovative ways that we could partner with coalitions to do something with daycare in our community. At that same time, I saw the opening for the Iowa Women's Foundation and thought, This is the best of both worlds. I get to keep that economic development knowledge that I have and also all the child care experience and speak to both. Describe what you'll be doing in this role and how people can utilize your expertise. I am going to be feet on the ground in communities all across Iowa, 
working with businesses in the community to help them understand how child care is an economic issue that impacts their workforce attraction and retention. Business leaders can reach out to us via email, or they can request our surveys and toolkits directly from the Iowa Women's Foundation website. I'd then follow up with an email that says, Please let us know when we can come to your community. If you'd like to have a more detailed conversation, we'd love to help you. It's completely free. Explain what those conversations entail. My role is to go into communities and share the Iowa Women's Foundation Toolkit, which explains to businesses why they should invest in child care, what they're losing out on by not helping with child care in their communities, and different ways that they can partner together to help solve the child care crisis. The toolkit has six options, including flexible work schedules, partnering with local child care centers, and purchasing slots at a local center for their employees. It's really a consulting approach. Everyone knows that this is an issue and they all want to do something, but they just don't know what. So my role is to come in and say, okay, here's what we're seeing in other communities. Here's what you could try here. You may want to take a little bit from community A, a little bit from community B, and make your own thing happen right here. What are your initial goals with your position? If you would have asked me this prior to the governor announcing the business incentive grant, I would have said, if I can reach out and be in 10 communities by the end of the year, that will be a success. Since I have started and the governor announced this grant, we've been kind of inundated and I have been drinking from a fire hose. After the grant period is over, I would say my goal is just to be in all of the geographical areas of Iowa, so communities representing the north, south, east, and west, and then the four corners of the state. What do you hope to see in your area of work in the next five or ten years? I want businesses to see that by investing in child care, they will help eliminate the, elect the economic barrier for working parents. How has the issue of child care in the state evolved since you worked in Mason City? Have you seen it shift at all? Child care has always been a difficult field in the sense of it's one of the lower paying jobs. The employee turnover in child care centers is pretty high. We're trying to shift the child care business model so that we're taking the burden off of parents. We know that Iowa is the number one state for parents working outside the home. It's also one of the most expensive states to raise a child, so the parents can't keep putting that burden on themselves. We lost a lot of women in the workforce due to COVID, and they're not necessarily coming back because there's no child care available. So what can we do to figure out how to solve this? Well, let's start looking at the private sector. They need workers to come and fill the jobs. Unless we really meet the needs for parents to be able to go and work, it's just not feasible for them to get back into the workforce unless they have somewhere to put their children. 
And we're even seeing that in before and after school care. Everyone thinks of child care as infants and toddlers, but we're really seeing a lot across the state that it's ages 0 to 12 because there's a lot of parents that need summer care and before and after school care because they have meetings. In your opinion, what role do businesses play in addressing Iowa's child care crisis? I think that businesses are the key to our child care crisis. I really do. Iowa loses an estimated $153 million annually in tax revenue due to child care issues. The employee turnover costs in Iowa is estimated at $781 million a year. And that's because we have parents that are late to work or have to leave early because of child care issues. Businesses don't necessarily need to go into every community that they're in and build brand new child care centers, not at all. It can be as simple as a flexible work schedule or offsetting some of that cost by offering some subsidies. We know that child care is expensive and that the average parent in a two-parent family pays about 11% of their salary toward child care. The national average is 7%. Even offering a subsidy of $100 a week towards child care if you have them in a center or an in-home provider. All those kinds of things. The return on the investment for the business is really high. They're going to have less employee turnover. They're going to have employees that are able to work full shifts, not have to leave early, and not miss as many days of work. And especially when you look at the businesses, by the time that they invest in the marketing to hire someone, get them trained, it's a lot of money going into the attraction and retention. So by keeping them and having something for their child care really eliminates the need for parents to be looking for other jobs. We find that most parents say that having some sort of child care benefit is huge. And in fact, some parents will even take a lower salary if there's some sort of offset of a child care benefit. One thing we just heard in a community was a daycare center director saying she gets calls weekly now from people that are calling because they have a job interview scheduled in that community. And they're calling her first to see if there's child care available. If there's no child care available, they're not going to take the interview because they're not going to come and live in your community if they can't have someone watch their kids while they go to work. What's it like being the first person in this position, blazing your own trail? I tell my friends and family this is so exciting. I feel really inspired that I have this opportunity, and that's one reason that I actually did leave the Mitchell County position because I saw the impact that child care was having on our tiny little county of 10,000. I can only do so much at the county level. I look at this as my opportunity to be that voice across the state. I would really like to see Iowa do some innovative, amazing things and really lead the nation in innovative child care ideas and getting public-private partnerships. I'd really like to have that positive focus on the state of Iowa and what we're doing to meet the needs for working parents and working moms. Sherry Penny at a glance. Hometown, 
lives in Osage, originally from Williamsburg. Family, husband, Chris, twin 10-year-old boys, Hayden and Holden, daughter, Carolyn, eight. Education, Kirkwood Community College, and bachelor's in elementary education from University of Iowa. Hobbies, teaching fitness classes, camping, reading, and golfing. Contact Sherry, S-H-E-R-I, at I-A-W-F dot org. From the Iowa Stops Hunger column, what business leaders can do to fight food insecurity. By Michael Crum. Business Publications Corp. will showcase another year of its Iowa Stops Hunger initiative on August 30th with a virtual event and the publication of its annual Iowa Stops Hunger magazine later this fall. BPC and its publications, including the Business Record, DSM Magazine, and IA Magazine, began Iowa Stops Hunger in 2020 as the number of people experiencing food insecurity increased during the early months of the coronavirus pandemic. The goal was to bring attention to those who are food insecure and to shed light on those who have made it their mission to help. Now, two years later, food insecurity has surged as inflation rose and prices of food and fuel soared. That created an added burden to SNAP recipients who saw their benefits reduced earlier this year. The benefits were increased during the early days of the pandemic, only to be reduced on April 1st as inflation was reaching its highest levels in more than 40 years. Those factors combined to cause a surge in the number of people seeking help through the Food Bank of Iowa's 55-county network in June when 135,300 individuals and 48,262 households were served. The previous record was in May, when 121,714 individuals were served. BPC's August 30th event, Iowa Business Leaders Making a Difference, will feature a panel of speakers who will discuss what the business community can do to address food insecurity and make a difference in their community. Ahead of the event, we asked the scheduled panelists to answer the question, what is one thing a business can do to address food insecurity? Here are their answers. Rana Baranobis, Vice President of Corporate Responsibility and Organizational Development at Athene, USA. At Athene, human services and health and well-being are two of our four philanthropic pillars. Under these pillars, we strive to support our community by providing resources for the underserved and bolster healthy lifestyles. We partner with the Food Bank of Iowa to support distribution of backpacks through the backpack program and culturally responsive food through multiple pantries in their 55-county service area. Through the backpack program, children are provided with cereal, 100% juice, shelf-stable milk, granola bars, canned pasta meals, and fruit cups. 
This program is provided at no cost to schools and families. Children throughout the service area were provided food in their homes over the weekend, giving them nourishment to be prepared for school on Monday through this program. This past year, over 48,000 pounds of food was distributed through the backpack program. The Culturally Responsive Food Program is another effort we are proud to support. Taking into account the specific diverse needs within the service area, it distributed over 39,000 pounds of masa flour, a staple in ethnic communities. Sharon Kraus, board member for In Harmony Farm and owner of Dalaterra Ranch. At In Harmony Farm, we work directly with socially disadvantaged Iowans, primarily immigrants and refugees, whose goal is to build sustainable farm businesses so they can feed their families and their communities while creating financial independence. Our program bridges the gap between successful urban gardening and small-scale specialty crop farming. Farmers receive access to three to five acres of land, instruction that builds climate-smart farming skills, technical assistance to support business development, and an opportunity to scale production gradually. We connect them with food assistance partners, including the Food Bank of Iowa and DMARC, to explore a market that offers financial return for the farmers while delivering high-quality, fresh, healthy produce, including culturally diverse choices to low-income communities. The farmers also market their produce through the Global Greens Farmers Market, which participates in the Double Up Food Bucks program. For every dollar spent on fresh fruits and vegetables, participants receive $1 in Double Up Food Bucks, essentially doubling their buying power and promoting healthy eating. Leah Rodenberg, Senior Program Manager at Alliant Energy. Fighting hunger is one of Alliant Energy's core giving pillars. Each year, the company supports numerous nonprofits focused on combating food insecurity among children, families, and seniors in Iowa through its giving programs and employee engagement. Since 2007, Alliant Energy has worked to end hunger through a signature event called Drive Out Hunger. Each fall, they invite their company's business partners from across the country to participate in a golf event with all proceeds directed to seven Feeding America food banks that serve their customers and communities in Iowa and Wisconsin. In the past 15 years, the Alliant Energy Foundation has raised over $5 million and provided over 17 million meals to those in need through this event. They anticipate raising $400,000 at this year's event on September 13th. The funds are utilized by the food banks to support mobile food distributions, school backpacks, and pantry programs. Nate Clark, Global Director of Corporate Social Responsibility at John Deere and President of the John Deere Foundation. The most effective way the John Deere Foundation contributes to ending hunger is by providing food banks with unrestricted funding. 
The people who work at food banks are our community's foremost experts on collecting and distributing food to those experiencing hunger. By providing these experts with resources they can use freely to enhance their work through capacity building, agency outreach, program innovations, and talent attraction, development, and retention, we have seen food banks become an even more effective institution vital to the sustainable well-being of our communities. We've seen time and again how food banks deploy unrestricted funds to not only increase the food they collect and distribute, but also distribute food and other resources in ways that provide greater equity, dignity, and prosperity to the people they serve. To register for the August 30th Iowa Stops Hunger virtual event, visit iowastopshunger.com dot com forward slash events. Our next story, Paying It Forward, Keeping a Legacy of Giving Alive by Michael Crum, Senior Staff Writer. Bill and Josephine Norkeitis spent their lives helping others. Whether that was Josephine hang, handing out bread from the bakery where she worked in Rockford, Illinois, to those who were less fortunate, or the couple giving out meals to the hungry from the McDonald's restaurants he ran, or the family of an employee who had cancer and couldn't work. For them, Bill paid the employee's wages for a year and then paid his wife all of her husband's profit sharing after he died. The couple never hesitated to use their good fortune to help others. Now, their daughter, Florence Birch, is working to keep their legacy of giving alive with a $1 million donation to the Mercy One Children's Hospital Neonatal Intensive Care Unit, the largest single private donation in the hospital's history. The neonatal unit has been named the William and Josephine Norkeitis Neonatal Intensive Care Unit and a ceremony was held August 3rd to unveil the new name and celebrate what the donation will mean for the care of infants and their families. The ceremony was attended by more than 60 friends, family members, and members of the hospital leadership. During an interview in advance of the ceremony, Birch talked about her parents, their work to help others, and the legacy she hopes to carry on in their name. Her parents, whom Birch described as having little means, developed their sense of giving as children and continued that as they grew up, had success in business, and had a family of their own. Birch said she hopes to use that same love of giving that was instilled in her as a child to continue sharing with the community that her parents loved. I can do things for other people that I wouldn't otherwise be able to do, she said. I hope they, her parents, are happy with my decisions. This whole thing is due to their efforts. I was just along for the ride. They worked hard. That's just what they did. Birch said her dad found joy in helping others. He wouldn't do for himself what he would do for other people, she said. That's where he found his joy. He found his joy in working and in giving. There is no question about it. 
Her father was a manager of a Western Tire automotive store in Rockford, and Josephine worked at a local factory. Birch isn't exactly sure how it all happened, but her dad met Ray Kroc, the founder of the McDonald's restaurant chain, in the 1950s. An opportunity came up to open a franchise, and Norkeitis sold the family's home and used the proceeds from the sale, $25,000, to become a partner in a restaurant in Cheyenne, Wyoming. A few years later, McDonald's wanted to expand, and an opportunity came up in Iowa, and in 1962, Norkeitis moved his family to Des Moines, opening a store on Grand Avenue. By the mid-1970s, he had opened a total of six restaurants. He ran the restaurants until the 1990s when he sold them, Birch said. Bill Norkeitis died in 1998 at the age of 81 after a battle with prostate cancer that spread to his bones. Josephine died in 2014 at the age of 104. A devout Catholic family of strong faith, the Norkeitises always gave back to the church and even helped their parish by a bus. Birch said her dad also made it a habit of always giving food from his businesses to the priests, nuns, and police officers in the community. During their lives, they created the Norkeitis family charities, and their commitment to the hospital began with their connection to the Sisters of Mercy after Bill Norkeitis began experiencing health problems in his 40s. Norkeitis successfully pushed for the opening of a Ronald McDonald House in Des Moines, one of only a few nationwide within a hospital, to serve families whose children were being treated at the hospital. After their deaths, the William and Josephine Norkeitis Student Success Center at Mercy College of Health was opened through a donation from the family. The recent donation to the neonatal intensive care unit is personal to Birch and her parents' legacy. Birch's mother had five pregnancies. One baby died in childbirth. There were three miscarriages. Birch was the result of the fifth pregnancy and is an only child. Her father, whom Birch described as a big man at six feet four inches tall and about 260 pounds, was born prematurely and wasn't expected to survive. That was one factor in the decision to donate to the NICU at Mercy, she said. Dr. Carrie Murphy, neonatologist and medical director of the Norkeitis Neonatal Intensive Care Unit, said the equipment that will be funded by the Norkeitis family's donation was the result of consultation and collaboration with Birch and the medical staff. Items will include a specialized camera that takes pictures of a premature infant's developing eyes looking for abnormalities. There are specialized beds that mimic the environment of the womb. The funding will help purchase specialized isolettes, some with ventilators built in to help ba move babies who are born prematurely. There are specialized ventilators to help treat newborns whose lungs aren't fully developed, and then there are simulation dolls that help hospital staff practice certain situations before they occur. 
Flo likes to be involved in where the money is going, Murphy said. People want to give money, but they want to see the direct impact of it. When you have gifts like these, where you know you can make big equipment purchases, you really want to look at what you're doing and optimize the money to the best of its ability, she said. The NICU serves 700 infants in 62 beds annually, caring for babies as young as 22 weeks old who need equipment to help them breathe. Murphy said if it weren't for donations, such as those from the Norkeitis family, the financial effect on the hospital would be significant. We're going to deliver the care we need to deliver these babies, and we'd be able to purchase the equipment, but it would put a stress and strain on all the hospital, all the patients, all the facets of care. So to be able to have these tremendous gifts, we've been able to optimize the care of these infants, Murphy said. During the August 3rd ceremony, Murphy became emotional, talking about the impact the Norkeitis family's gift will have and the importance of people coming together to benefit those who need help. I can guarantee you that you're going to impact another generation of parents that are going to have that opportunity to pass on these types of characteristics of giving. For Birch, the donation and the collaboration with hospital staff will ensure her parents' legacy of giving will live on to help children and their families. They moved their feet in the direction that they believed, she said of her parents. They did what they believed they should do. You're listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, August 12, 2022, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Chicago Fed President forecasts second-half growth, little risk of recession as inflation dips in July. By Michael Crum. The nation's economy will likely grow in the second half of 2022. Charles Evans, the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, said during an event at Drake University on Wednesday, August 10th, the same day a report showed inflation had dipped to 8.5%. Evans, who spoke during an economic update sponsored by Drake University and the Greater Des Moines Partnership, also said the risk of the economy falling into recession was low. He participated in a question-and-answer session moderated by Robert Palmer, a member of the Chicago Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago Advisory Council and General Counsel to the Iowa League of Cities. The event, held in Drake University's Sheslow Auditorium, also included an opportunity for audience members to ask questions. Evans has held his current position since 2007. Before becoming president, he was director of research and senior vice president, supervising the bank's research on monetary policy, banking, financial markets, and regional economic conditions. On Wednesday morning, the latest Consumer Price Index report was released, showing inflation declined in July to 8.5% from 9.1% in June and lower than the 8.6% of May. 
Evans said it's a small sign that efforts the Fed is taking to bring inflation under control may be working. It's better than the report last month and the month before, so we're getting the first positive report that the headline-level prices are flat, Evans said. He said he expects that the Federal Reserve will continue to increase rates the rest of this year and into 2023 in an effort to get inflation back to 2%. The Federal Reserve increased rates by 0.75% on July 27th, its latest increase this year in an effort to bring inflation down. I'm optimistically forecasting into next year the core array of PCE inflation is going to be something closer to 2.5%. That will be above our 2% objective, but it will be substantially lower than where we are now, Evans said in his opening remarks. Core PCE inflation is the measure of prices people pay for goods and services not including food and energy, which are more susceptible to price swings. Evans said he does not believe the country is in a recession. He also doesn't believe it's likely a recession will occur. I'm not looking for the economy to turn down in any significant fashion, so I'm not looking for recession, he said. For the second half of this year, we should see positive growth. We have seen cooling household spending. Retail sales have been slowing. The housing market has turned down. We've increased interest rates, and markets are expecting further increases in interest rates. There is a lot of uncertainty that businesses are navigating, and when that's the case, they're usually cautious about expanding their operations. Evans said those were some of the reasons growth was flat or negative in the first half of the year, referring to the two previous gross domestic product reports. But I don't think that's indicative of a recession, he said. Recessions are usually things that are a surprise. Something happens and then all of a sudden the economy turns down. He also pointed to last month's jobs report which showed 528,000 jobs were created in July and unemployment was low. It is surely the case that the economy is a little more fragile at this point, but I think it would take something adverse to take us in a downturn. The fundamentals continue to be pretty good, Evans said. He said supply chain issues continue to be a challenge, and that the just-in-time production inventory model just doesn't seem to be working as well under current conditions as it does for a long period of time. He said it's more challenging for businesses to move toward a buffer stock inventory. Other risks to the economy are the ongoing war in Ukraine, geopolitical risks, and ongoing workforce issues in the U.S., Evans said. He said it's uncertain whether the labor force issues will be resolved in the next couple of years. There's millions and millions of more vacancies out there than available unemployed workers, and the question that comes to mind of economists is how do you reduce that number of vacancies without the unemployment rate going up a lot, Evans said. He said the economy is in a very unusual situation. 
with the sharp downturn at the onset of COVID-19, followed by a sharp recovery, which he said is not normal monetary policy. Evans said it's possible that the Fed's monetary policy can be tightened enough to lower inflation, but that unemployment will likely go up to about 4.25%, which he said is a more sustainable number. Usually, if unemployment is low, actions can be taken to knock it up a little. But if inflation is also low, taking action on unemployment wouldn't make sense, Evans said. Why would anyone want to get in the way of the economy or when American households are doing well, he said. But when inflation is high, then that's a problem. So other things are reordered, and vacancies are just part of that, Evans said. I think that adjustment process could likely be just very different from anything else we've experienced. He said he expects that there are people who have just not returned from the COVID shutdown, or that there could be child care and adult care issues. Then there is the aging workforce, which makes things more challenging, Evans said. One question from the audience was about equity and whether the Federal Reserve can drive benefits to those on the bottom of the economic ladder rather, to do, rather than to those at the top. Evans said the Federal Reserve should look broadly at how its policies affect everybody. Congress has take, tasked the Federal Reserve with promoting maximum employment, stable prices, and moderate long-term interest rates. We should be cautious not to provoke an unnecessary economic restraint unless it's really essential to maintain price stability, Evans said. We're in a current situation where there is 8.5% inflation. We really need to get on top of that. So I think we should do it in a measured and appropriate way. But we have to make sure that we can reestablish price stability before too long. Monetary policy is really only one tool. If I had five tools, I might be able to get a particular income distribution a little bit more. We need other policies, so policymakers should come together and think about what's good for the economy, he said. From Lab to Market, Safety Tech by Sarah Bogards. This story originally ran in the 2022 Innovation Iowa magazine. SafeyTech was founded from a partnership between Ian Tevis, a then postdoctoral student at Iowa State University, and the researcher he came to study under, Martin Thuo, assistant professor of materials science and engineering. Thuo says, in essence, materials science is, quote, finding utility for whatever nature provides or whatever you can make, end quote. And the SafeyTech co-founders decided in December 2015 to update a material that had already had utility for the modern digital age. SAC305 is the name for the lead-free solder alloy most commonly used for electronics manufacturing. And it happened to be invented and patented in the U.S. by Iowa State professors and their colleagues in the 1990s. 
Soldering is the process of joining metals using another different metal with a lower melting point. By the time the patent on SAC 305 expired in 2013, the invention was licensed by companies in 13 countries and generated more than $58 million in royalties. Tavis said it was the push for lead-free alloys that brought SAC 305 to the market. It became the primary alloy that everyone in electronics manufacturing is familiar with, but Tevis and Thuo took it back into the lab to fix one problem, temperature. Soldering requires heating an alloy to its melting point, which for SAC 305 is 473 degrees Fahrenheit. Using a technique they describe as supercooling, Tevis and Thuo are the first to develop a new version of SAC 305 called No Heat SAC 305 that can be used for soldering at 65 degrees Celsius or about 150 degrees Fahrenheit, lower, quote, than anybody could possibly imagine, end quote. As technologies use more wearable materials and move away from metals, Thuo said SafeyTech's adaptation will ensure non-metal components don't melt during the manufacturing process. Another priority of the no-heat SAC 305 is promoting energy efficiency, as the lower temperature requirement saves energy over time and wasted materials. The connection to the green technology mission is in the SafeyTech name as well. Thuo, who is originally from Kenya, said the word safi in Swahili happens to mean clean. The startup transitioned from the lab to commercialization in January 2016 and is now affiliated with the Iowa State University Research Park with lab space on campus. Tevis and Thuo have found angel investors for SafeyTech through the ISU Startup Factory, and have received funding or other support from the Regents Innovation Fund, the National Science Foundation's Small Business Innovation Research Program, and the Iowa Economic Development Authority. Local developer pursued Top Golf for four years. By Kathy A. Bolton, Senior Staff Writer. Around 5 p.m. on Wednesday, June 22nd, Richard Hurd's phone rang. The commercial real estate developer answered, and on the other end was a representative from Topgolf. The global sports and entertainment company was opening an entertainment venue in Iowa, and they wanted to build it on land Hurd owned in West Des Moines, the representative told the developer. They said I could notify the mayor of West Des Moines and let him know, but no one else, said Hurd, who owns 23 acres on the northwest corner of South Jordan Creek Parkway and Mills Civic Parkway, on which Topgolf wanted to build an entertainment venue. The next morning, Topgolf announced its plans to open the company's first Iowa location in West Des Moines. Hurd's call from Topgolf was not totally unexpected. In 2018, the developer had reached out to Topgolf officials about the site, which he had owned for about three years. 
We always felt that it was a great site for that use if they had an interest in opening one in West Des Moines, Heard said. Over the next couple of years, Heard continued to communicate with Top Golf officials in conversations that he described as pretty casual and without much traction. Top Golf has long been a national retailer residents have clamored for in central Iowa. The Dallas-based company opened its first U.S. venue in 2005 in Alexandria, Virginia. Top Golf, in its first years of operation, opened venues in areas with populations of 1 million or more. In 2019, Top Golf began opening venues in medium-sized markets, including Omaha, where it opened a facility in mid-2020. Heard said Top Golf officials wanted to see how the Omaha venue did before considering a location in Des Moines. It actually did well. The demographics between Des Moines and Omaha are similar, even though Des Moines is smaller. They felt like Des Moines was a market that might have merit, and so we continued talking, he said. They didn't really get serious until the last six months or so. A spokesperson for Topgolf wrote in an email that the company is, quote, excited to join the Des Moines community, end quote. The spokesperson wrote that the company didn't have any additional details available about the West Des Moines venue beyond what was in its initial announcement. The multi-level venue will include 72 climate-controlled outdoor hitting bays, will serve food and drinks, and will offer year-round programming. In the months leading up to Topgolf's announcement, Backers of two golf entertainment venues announced plans to open facilities in the greater Des Moines area. Sweet Shots in West Des Moines and Bombers in Johnston. Paul County, a local developer partnering with a Fargo, North Dakota group to bring Sweet Shots to a site south of Grand Avenue and west of Interstate 35, declined to comment about Topgolf's announcement. He did say, however, that the Sweet Shots project is moving forward and that he expects to finalize the land purchase in the coming weeks. The proposed bombers development is also moving forward, said Dr. Alan Stoy, a principal and managing partner in SNK Holdings, which is developing the entertainment and hotel complex planned at 5055 Merle Hay Road in Johnston. While Top Golf representatives were meeting with Heard, they were also talking with Stoy about possibly being part of the Bombers project. Stoy said he met with officials from Top Golf three times over a several week period that began in early March. During that time, Stoy and the Top Golf officials went through several revisions of a letter of intent, he said. Stoy said he knew Top Golf officials were considering other Des Moines area locations, but believed the Bombers development had a shot at landing the National Golf Entertainment Company. Right across the street, there is a 200,000-square-foot indoor recreation facility that is being built that also includes an outdoor athletic complex, and it's going to be busy 49 weekends out of the year, said Stoy referring to the Ignite Sports and Fitness Center under construction at 5346 Merle Hay Road. 
About two miles south, work is beginning on a 3,500-seat arena that will be the new home of the Des Moines Buccaneers hockey team. The facility will include four sheets of ice for competition, training, and recreation, and has the potential to draw hundreds of people to the area a majority of weekends during the year. We've got millions of dollars being invested in this two-mile corridor that is going to attract thousands of people, Stoy said. Stoy said he still thinks the Johnston site would be a good location for Top Golf. He said until there's a signed agreement between Herd and Top Golf, there's still a chance Top Golf officials could decide to locate a facility somewhere other than near Jordan Creek Town Center. There's still a possibility, but I'm not holding out hope, Stoy said. In May, Heard met with top golf representatives during a convention in Las Vegas. During the meeting, he said he reiterated that the parcel at Jordan Creek and Mills Civic Parkways was a logical location for a top golf venue. They really like to be around retail. The very best retail in the whole state is the Jordan Creek Mall corridor, hands down, Heard said. The second thing they really look for is corporate users. The corporate campuses of Wells Fargo Home Mortgage, Athene USA, IMT Insurance, and Salmon's Financial are either adjacent to or near the site on which Top Golf is considering developing. Top Golf officials visited the Des Moines area twice in June, Heard said. He said he knew they were considering other sites in the Des Moines area. We never really know what's going on behind the scenes with these big companies, Heard said. We didn't even know a decision was coming. It's the way the game is played. Fortunately, we had the site they preferred. Now turning to Dave Albert's column, The Albert Files. Letters from 1930. My cousin Naomi handed me copies of 31 letters during her father's 100th birthday celebration on June 7th. The pages chronicle a three-month trip to the West Coast that our grandparents, Leslie and Esther Everly, took in 1930 with their three children, Dorothy, 13, my mother Evelyn, 11, and Naomi's father, Aubrey, 8. The letters were handwritten on the road and mailed to relatives in Iowa. I've always been curious about that Depression-era trip. What prompted 36-year-old Leslie to shut down his farm and take off for the West Coast with his wife, three children, and their dog Fido in a Winnebago-style camper that he built on the frame of a flatbed truck? Did he hope to find work? To join relatives who had already moved to California? Or was it, as my mother remembered, just one big long vacation? I still don't know. What is clear is that my grandfather suffered pain in his shoulder and hip throughout the trip and wrote that the pain often made him cranky. The family left their farm near Bondurant on Thursday, August 7th and returned 107 days later on the Saturday before Thanksgiving. Their original party included a teacher for the children, but she bailed after two weeks. Early letters sound grim with Leslie reporting. Esther had to drive a good deal. 
my rheumatism is hurting me pretty bad. In fact, my five foot three inch grandmother, who was shorter than her 13 year old daughter, drove the bus sized motorhome much of the time. Dirt roads make a person tired and plenty dirty, Esther wrote. We sure have to clean house after we make a drive. The life is all right if you like it, she continued, but I can't say I like it. Expenses are greater than I thought, Leslie wrote on August 29th. His homemade motor home got 12 miles per gallon. At 25 cents a gallon, fuel would cost about $100. That's one thousand seven hundred seventy in twenty twenty dollars for the five thousand mile trip. The family did odd jobs along the way to earn money, including picking apples in Minnesota and Washington, and Leslie hunted and fished for food. The letters mention a few souvenirs, including a bobcat rug that is still in the family. They kept in touch with family by having letters addressed to them in care of general delivery at post offices along their route. At one point, Leslie asked his parents to not include a return address because letters with return addresses were returned after 10 days. With no return address, he explained, general delivery mail was held for 30 days. In late August, they drove through the Black Hills, where sculptor Gutson Borglum had begun his work on Mount Rushmore Monument in 1927, but there wasn't much to see yet. They spent several days in Yellowstone Park and much of September in Washington State, where the children attended school for two days before they moved on, with Leslie writing, Don't know just where we will go from here. A new road along the Columbia River brought them to Portland, Oregon, where they headed south. Their first view of the ocean was in Northern California. A ferry carried their mobile home across San Francisco Bay. Their ultimate destination was Los Angeles, where most of three weeks was spent sightseeing and visiting relatives in Long Beach. The collection of letters ended with a postcard dated November 10th. November 5th, it said, We are now on Catalina Island, going out on the glass-bottom boat in a few minutes. Leslie. One reason the trip remained so vivid for my mother and her siblings was that their father died on Valentine's Day 1931, less than three months after they returned. And that does it for today's reading of the business record for Friday, August 12th, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.